Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. We are taught this week by lead teacher Randy Pope. Thank you for joining us today. The message that uh, I'm giving is a two-part. It uh, began last week, the heritage and hope of a nation. It was our nation's birthday and appropriate to address it, but time doesn't permit us to, to do a good job on that in one week. And so this is a carryover into week two. Uh, and I'm going to just watch this, okay? I'm going to ask you, if you could not have been here last week, you're out of town, you didn't come, you weren't coming here till this week or whatever, doesn't matter, but you weren't here last week, raise your hand, look around, raise your hand. See, nobody was here last week, I'm telling you. <laughs> But the 30 or 40 of you that were, if you'll put up with just a few minutes because what I want to do is to recap because I don't think we can go into the latter part of this, of this subject matter in text without first introducing it. So I'm going to do it very, very briefly. But uh, so if you want to go to the podcast, you can certainly get far more there. But I began last week with three controversial questions, each addressed by one of the first three points that you find in your outline. Here are those questions. Was America born as a Christian nation? And if not, was it ever intended to be? Number two question, is there a correlation between our nation's religious heritage and the unusual prosperity that it has enjoyed? Number three question, is it right to legislate morality, imposing a particular morality on its nation's people? Now, those three, again, addressed in these first three major points. So, uh, and these are really introductory points, but let's, let's hit them quickly. Number one, the United States was begun as a theistic nation, possessing religious freedom with the intention of propagating the gospel. I cannot underscore enough, and particularly our young people, please hear this. What we suppose is critically important. What we will suppose to be will be determined in great part by what we presuppose, which is a presupposition. We all have presuppositions. This congregation probably is split in many ways, generationally for sure, even though we're in the same culture, same basic socioeconomic levels and so forth. Let me tell you, it is amazing to see how divided a people can be, and it's because of presuppositions. It's true of our nation. It's true of everything we're experiencing. People today, I mean, what are we going through in this country right now? What is happening internationally? And we can say, well, I understand, but not this country. What we're, what's happening here? It's division. Why does division take place? Because we have different suppositions, and those are based on presuppositions. And we get one presupposition, we build on it, it takes us to an entirely different conclusion than what might be seemingly a minor presupposition, but let it build, and as it goes, it turns further and further apart. That's what's happened. Do you know there are people that can't understand why, why would this older generation revere a country like the United States? An older generation says, well, well why do the young people revere the nation that's been so blessed and so good and so important. A lot of it is presuppositions that we make. 
And some of those presuppositions come out of this question, was this a Christian nation? I was walking through the lobby before the first service, and uh, somebody said, Randy, have you seen this book? And I knew the author, who the author was, familiar with the book, not read it, but it was on our nation, and a very good person, the author. And they said, yeah, this author is building a case, trying to build a case that God gave the forefathers the intention and heart to start the second Israel, that the United States would be the new Israel. Folks, there could be nothing further from the truth than that. But a lot of people have assumed, at least, well, we're a Christian nation. Hear this, and I'll make it quick and simple. We were not ever intended to be a Christian nation. We were intended to be a theistic nation. That's why you can go to our Declaration of Independence. You can look at any of our documents. You can look at our Constitution. You'll see God, but you don't see Jesus. Some of our forefathers wanted that very badly, but realized it's not wise. It's not appropriate. We shouldn't do that. What they said was, give us a level playing ground. Let's build a nation of freedom, thus the First Amendment. Let's have a nation of freedom, and therefore we got a level playing ground. We've got the advantage as Christians because we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit. If it's real, let it play out. That's all we need is freedom. I quoted one after the other of the great forefathers of this nation. They didn't claim this to be a, a Christian nation, not really. What they were saying is we came with the intention as Christians, pilgrims, most of them Christians, they came with the intention of being able to propagate the gospel, to proclaim truth and to hold to the truth of God as closely as possible. Yes, they had that intention, but it was never to be a Christian nation. Now, number two, America's prosperity has been proportionate to the degree to which it is conformed to the teaching of God's Word. It's an observation. Maybe it's, maybe it's skewed by me and others. I don't know, but I think you can see the graph. You see how the nation held to the things of God and, and close adhered to that, and then what happened as we began to turn away? The prosperity of this land, I think, has, it's, a, it's a new day today. What are we experiencing today? Why is it there? Would it be different? Or are we holding to the things of God? I think so. Maybe I'm wrong, though. That's not an important issue. But I will say this. We need to learn something about prosperity. Again, if you've gone through membership here, you hear this. We make a huge distinction between life prosperity and lifestyle prosperity. We don't believe God promises lifestyle prosperity, though he often gives it with life prosperity. And we take the fact that it often does happen and we make that the reality that it must and always is. No, that's not true. In fact, what God can do is give us the greatest life blessing by taking away lifestyle prosperity. We may be there as a nation. We just may be a country now. God says the greatest way I can bless you is to take away lifestyle prosperity. But there is, I think, a correlation between the two. You make that decision. Number three, <clears throat> it is never wrong for a state to impose morality on its people. The reality is any legislation imposes either morality or immorality. You can have no legislation without touching some form of one of the two. Therefore, it's ridiculous to say otherwise. And I went into detail on that. 
We do need to understand this, that you cannot legislate in a way to cause morality in the heart of a person. That's a work of God. It's a choice of man if they do it just in a religious or non-religious manner to be moral. Perfectly fine. But you cannot make somebody by a legislation to be moral in their heart. That's a work of God. Now, having just shared those basic things, we now have a fourth point of introduction before we get to Psalm 33, and it goes like this. We must continue to fight for the freedom of our land, not for the sake of the enjoyment of its freedom, but for the opportunity to more freely and effectively propagate the gospel. Many of you, particularly the older generation, would know the name Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest theologians of, of the modern era. They most all agree with that. Great thinker, great understander of culture. One of the things that he underscored a lot was the fact that the modern day of today, we have so idolized, not that it's new, but we've lifted it up in a new way, the idols of peace and prosperity. Do you know that the Bible would tell us we should we should strive for peace and we should strive for prosperity. There's nothing wrong with either of the two. But anything that becomes an idol that's put in a place that it's not intended to be, it becomes destructive. God's against that. And what's happened now is that we've realized that what we've often done as a people, and I bet this is true of a lot of us here, not you, but us here. And we've placed this ideal of peace and prosperity that we've known in our country for so long. And our great grieving is the fact that we're losing our peace and prosperity and that our children and grandchildren may not know the great prosperity, the great peace that we've enjoyed for so long. And that's our great concern. Let me tell you, the concern has got to be, oh yeah, we would love to have those things. But the greater concern is what the forefathers came here with the intention, not just to enjoy peace and prosperity, but to be able to propagate the gospel. I think a great telltale that we've got something way out of balance is when we can go to bed at night, and I mean be consumed through the day with politics and what's going to happen if so-and-so gets elected. And what are we going to do if we have these dangers lurking all the time? What if we can't solve this problem? Oh, my goodness, look at the freedoms being lost that the church has right now. Oh, my goodness. And never think about the idea of, wait, I didn't propagate the gospel today. It, it, it's not even been on my mind. I've been consumed with my freedom and its loss. And my, but what about the opportunity that's being lost to propagate the gospel. You know, it's very possible to pray for the right things, things that are right in, heart with the line, with the, right in line with the heart of God. But we never have them answered, as James 4 says, because we ask with wrong motives that we may spend them in our own pleasure. And so I think we're going to have to evaluate and say, wait, wait, wait. What am I really hoping in here? Is it freedom and prosperity or an opportunity to have that level playing ground so that we and others like us can say the most important truth of life can get out freely. That should be the greatest reason of all. Now, this is going to take us now to the fifth. This is the point that matters. 
The other stuff to me is, okay, that's good to know, I need to know. This is what we have to know, number five. Our hope in a strong America may be passed, but our hope in God remains as strong as ever. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 33. I hope this psalm is going to come alive to you, and for the rest of your life, you might remember Psalm 33 and go back to it again and again. I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible by exegeting it or walking through it very quickly in such a way that maybe you'll see the bigger, bigger, bigger picture and you'll be able to love this psalm as it needs to be loved. This is a truth of all truths. Let's go through it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to read the first nine verses, but you can see in your outline verses one through three, it's an invitation to worship. Read it this afternoon or later. It's an invitation to worship. That's where everything begins. And the psalmist knows that. And he says, come, let's worship God. Then we get to verses 4 through 9. And he starts talking about this subject matter of God's word in creation. He's setting us up, folks, for what's coming. And what he's saying is this. Do you understand that when God speaks, it happens? When he says it is. You can look at the world that we live in and everything after that. He speaks and it is. So he tells us a little bit about the God we worship. But then in verses 10 through 15, he starts literally talking about God's sovereign rule over all the nations. You're going to see the plural here as opposed to what's coming later, which is going to be the nation. But the nations... Literally, as we read this, know this, it's talking about, it, it means it can be translated Gentiles. So look at our first few verses, verses 10 and 11. Here's how it reads. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, the Gentile nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation He's trying to cover everything there and say, do you understand that God's reign and rule is over everything and everyone? These are the nations, Old Testament nations. Oh, they thought they were supreme. He says, they're not supreme. And the Israelites are getting this message and they say, you need to understand what they're thinking of them. You shouldn't agree with because it's not true. What do the people of Iran think today? What do the people of North Korea think about themselves? Well, they think they rule themselves. And God is saying, hey, that's not true. And if you and I think, as we look at the world situation, that, well, they're, they're supreme, they're ruling, they're people, they're going to do evil to us, and this and the other, they're the ones in charge. The psalm is going to say, not true. It's not true at all. So we better have a good presupposition here. Are we going to start supposing things that are going to get us in big, 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 big trouble in our hearts? So then he goes to verse 12, a often misinterpreted verse. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Most people read that and they go, oh, blessed is any nation whose God is the Lord. That's not what the text is saying. That may be true. That's not what the text is saying, though, here. It's saying blessed is the nation, that's Israel, 
whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. And it's interesting, that chosen concept, this whole divided, oh, do we believe God chooses? You know, I don't find many Christians ever that disagree that God chose Israel to be a platform for his love and to demonstrate his love to them and through them. Oh, yeah, yeah, God chose those people. You know, but God doesn't choose every individual that makes up those people and us that are it's God's work. He's just trying to get this bigger picture. Folks, you got to understand how big God is. Even if we don't understand and we can't, know this, that God, he speaks and he sees. So we look at, at what comes next in the uh, 13th through 15th verse. Now we're going to see it shift from what he says to what he sees. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men, all the nations. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands their works. It's just saying this, please know this, God has everyone under his domain. And that's the teaching. He has everybody. Don't think that if you're God, you're in his domain. If you're outside God, oh, you're not. No, you're in his domain in terms of his sovereign control. He speaks and it happens. He sees and it is. Nothing does he miss. Now, having said that, we now come to the implications. Now we start getting practical in a very real sense. And I'm going to conclude the message with making this extremely practical. But you got to hear what the psalmist, this is God's word. The implications are twofold. You'll see it divided. The first two verses, 16 and 17, he's going to tell us, in light of all that's been said, human might is vain. It's worthless. It's no good. And here's how he says it in 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. Hey, tell a great king that. See if he agrees. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. Oh, really? The warrior would say... Look at me how strong I am. Look how powerful. No. He even says a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So young people, I ask you, is it, is it true that you can become successful kind of on your own if you're just beautiful or you're athletic, you're academically outstanding you you rise beyond other people can therefore you make yourself no if you got intellect God gave it if you got talent ac academically or athletically God gave it to you that's his choice some of us you great business leaders men and women out there just knocking it out of the park and how easy is it for us to think look what I've done look what I've got oh yeah God used you Oh, yes, you're, you've been faithful, responsible. But let me tell you, he says, don't ever think that your power, your might is what makes you great. It is not. It is in vain to think that way. Now he's going to flip it around. And the second thing, the implication is simply this. Divine mercy is everlasting. So 17 through 19 or 18 through 19, this is what he says. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. There is again the seeing of God. 
on those who hope for his loving kindness. Now, don't forget that, hope for his loving kindness. Then he says, to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. And so basically he's saying, no, if you really want to know <clears throat> where we place our hope, then you look to God and note his loving kindness, which is his mercy. He didn't give us what we deserve. In fact, it says to deliver the soul from death. How does that happen? For you that come as seekers, you're kind of new to this Christian thing. You're trying to figure it out. Let me tell you, this is where the gospel comes in. The psalmist would understand Messiah coming. And he's saying that's how it happens. It's through the deliverance of the soul from death, what we deserve. That's Jesus. And Jesus alone can do that. To wrap it up, the last three verses, verse 20, how, the hope, how to hope in the Lord alone. Verse 20 says this, our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. I hate that word wait. Do you like it? Well, who wants to wait? Not when I think in my own strength I can do something without even caring what God says, thinking about what God says, or inviting God to be a part of what I'm hoping for and trying to accomplish. And let me tell you, that's where so many of us are trapped right now. We are making it happen. And we wake up every day as if it's on our shoulders and it's not going to be if we don't make it. And people want to fight. We, we need to be fighting. We need to be fighting. But let me tell you, we fight in the right way. We become those that wait on the Lord in order to fight. Well, what do you mean? Look at the next verse, the result. The result, verse 21. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. The heart rejoices. That's happy heart. That's a happy heart. It has nothing to do with how the circumstances, what's happening in my life right now, how is my candidate doing, how's my party doing, how's my nation doing, how's, how's my family doing, how's my, how are my children, how are they doing. That's what will give me a happy heart. He says, no, you've got it totally wrong. You've got to wait on God. What do you mean wait on God? His loving kindness. You look to his love. That's what can give a happy heart when the worst of circumstances are all around us. I tell you, large percentages of us are trapped in the mindset, I can have a happy heart if. And it has nothing to do with God's loving kindness. It has to do with my spouse, my child, my business, my job, my teacher, my friends, it's all about the wrong thing. So he ends with a prayer. <clears throat> I love this closing prayer. Verse 22, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. In what? Your loving kindness. That I can count on you, that you love me. I can count on you with our country because you love me and I'm a citizen of this place. It doesn't mean the country is going to be what I want it to be, but it doesn't affect the loving kindness. It doesn't affect the happy heart I have. 
I think till we begin to believe that and think it and pursue it on that basis, we're going to be a people who don't experience happy hearts. It's all based on him. Now, very, very practically, I just suggest three realities just to put it all kind of in an easy to remember. These three realities about hope. Number one, the object of our hope will eventually dominate our lives. So, you start hoping in greatness and success. If that becomes your great, let me tell you, you'll be obsessed with academics or athletics or profession or whatever it is that's going to give you your greatness if that's what you're looking for. If it's family, you're going to be so about your kids. You're going to be so about your marriage. Can I make it? It's, everything will be, you'll be consumed with it. If it's health, it'll be what do you eat? Nothing, nothing wrong with being healthy. Nothing wrong with a good marriage. But you just become consumed with it because we place our hope. And if we could just see, that's the problem. We just have our hope in the wrong place. And it's creating all these other issues as opposed to we put our hope in the things of God and we say it's your kingdom and your righteousness. That's what, that's what I'm going to be committed to when I hope in you. Or secondly, what we hope for will ultimately determine who we hope in. If our hope is in the temporal, we'll put our hope in ourselves and other people. We'll put it in our nation. We'll put it in our, our government leaders. We'll, we'll find somebody to hope in. And then when those begin to be attacked or not come through, then we're crushed. No happy hearts. But what happens is when we put our hope in that which is eternal, then we look to God through Jesus. We say, ah, your loving kindness, it remains the same forever. Or number three, improper hope always leads to sin and disappointment. It never comes through. Don't you want a happy heart? I do. I don't want to wake, lay awake at night because I got a problem that I can't change. I can't do anything to change it. I'd love to lay awake at night. And though it grieves me, the, the trouble, the pain, the heartache, the, the sadness of what's happening, that I can say, God, your loving kindness, it remains. And I'm going to set my hope on you. Let me close with this. My last thought, there is good news, really good news, as it has to do with hope and with a nation that's going through what we're going through right now, a world that's going through what our world is going through. And here it is. I'll make it a statement. Keep in mind the good news. Trials erase the illusion that we are in control, and they ultimately clarify our hope. Trials are some of the greatest blessings we could ever have. As I often like to think of it, I've heard someone use this term, upgrade. I love it. Do you realize that every trial comes into our life is the great potential for an incredible upgrade in life? It's almost like, okay, I got this reservation on this plane and I'm ready to take and I'm ready. I got to get to my meeting and it's important. I got to go, 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 let's go. And then they say, uh, sir, I'm sorry, uh, we can't not board you right now. But well, wait, 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 I'm in zone one. I'm in zone one. I get to go first and I've got luggage and I've got a, several things and I want to make sure there's enough room. 
And sure enough, if my luggage is taken off and then I've got a weighted baggage claim, I'm not going to make it. This is the worst thing. You can't do it. Calm down, sir. Calm down. We just don't have. We cannot put you on there yet. And then what happens? We're the last one to board and we're going, oh, my goodness. Here, sir, here's your first class ticket. We just want to let you know that we want to make sure we had enough room and we have you on, we have you on business class. Really? An upgrade? Yeah, trials. So often, they precede upgrades. If we could only believe that way. So put it in a text. Listen to this, Romans 5, 3 through 5. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they are good for us. They help us learn to endure. And endurance develops strength of character in us. And character strengthens our confident expectation of salvation. And this expectation will not disappoint us. Happy hearts. For we know how dearly God loves us. There's his loving kindness. Because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. I said, you know what? You don't believe I love you? Go to Calvary's cross. And remember, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? We have, many of you know, we have 14 little grandchildren, and they're all young. We have them spend the night with us, some here and there, and, and pops tells stories to them. They want pops to tell the story. I don't want to tell them just any story, and I've been thinking so much about, what do, I, what do I communicate to these kids in fun? And I'll create a story. But you know what I'm doing? I'm telling them in one form or fashion, and I'm going to keep doing it. A difference between two things, feel and real. You understand that feelings today, in this, this age, feeling is now revered in such a way. Let me tell you, you'll get sued quicker and for more money for hurting somebody's feelings today than you will for hurting them physically. We've revered it. We've put it up with sexual pleasure to be revered. And now it's just revered. How you feel, how you feel. So I want to tell these kids. I want to tell them stories. I want them to hear this. Wait, wait, wait. If you feel like nobody loves you, if you feel like you're not attractive, if you feel like you're not popular and therefore you really don't have much value, is that the way you feel or is that what's real? Oh, you want me to tell you what real is? That's Phil, P-H-I-L. He's a character I've got, Phil. <laughs> but there's real over here. And let me tell you, real is totally different. Real doesn't always feel, but it is still real. And you know what happens? You understand the truth of it. Know you're loved by God because you're in his image and you've been redeemed by him. And he has set his love on you. And there's not another human in the world, even the Lord himself, that's loved with any greater love than God has for you. That's what makes you so significantly valuable. Feel versus real. And you can take that and apply it in a hundred different scenarios. But I'm telling you, in our nation, 
we feel if our nation is not everything it has been and should be, then everything is lost. That feel or real? That's feel. Real is God speaks still, God sees still, and God's love is everlasting. That's forever. That's real. So you go live on feel, you're not going to have a happy heart. You go live on real, and you're going to have some terrible circumstances because you know what? God didn't promise lifestyle prosperity. But I tell you what, he does promise a happy heart if you put your hope in him. Go to the cross. You cannot deny his great loving kindness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us to be a people who don't just feel and believe, but that we search from there and we break away, particularly our young people here. Oh, God, let them be a people who look for what's real and denounce that which is not. And, Father, at the same time, to see the beauty, the wonder, the splendor of our feelings, but only as guided by the truth, grant us to be a people who have happy hearts that we might serve you better, that you might be honored more. We pray in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.